everyone. Welcome to episode six of the Rask 150 History Podcast, in which we follow the contours of where the Rask has wandered purposefully or otherwise over the past 150 years. My name is Heather Laird. I am a director of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, and my co-host is the Rask archivist, Randall Rosenfeld. Say hello, Randall. Welcome to the sixth episode of the Rask Horrible Histories. Oh, sorry, wrong script. Or, uh, hello. Hmm, curiosity about how the universe works is essential to who we are. We assume that you've tuned into this podcast because you're curious about the evolution of a part of the story of the Rask, a rather modest part of the universe indeed. The topic of this podcast is mapping the heavens. Well, not all mapping of the heavens, but rather several aspects of the cultural context, use, and production of cartographic representations of the sky in the Rask. We should define a few terms before we go on, and who knows, you might even be able to use these in a pub quiz prior to the last call, before the heat death of the universe. Our first term is uranography, which the Oxford English Dictionary defines as, quote, the branch of astronomy concerned with the description and mapping of the stars or the heavens, or a description or delineation of these, close quote. The term goes back to the 17th century. And our second term is astrometry, which can be defined as, quote, that department of astronomy bearing upon the careful and precise measurement of celestial objects in the sky, end quote. It is easy to see the relationship between the activities of uranography and astrometry for accurate positions of celestial objects are needed in order to place those objects on celestial maps. It is probably fair to say that in representing the heavens symbolically, we are mapping ourselves onto the sky. The names we assign to what we see up there, from Greco-Roman constellations and asterisms, to medieval Arabic star names in Latin form, to alphanumerical designations for objects in modern catalogues, are names we assign based on our systems of meaning, however empirically derived. The names and their assigned meanings run deeper than the present, and it's a bit like an archaeological site. Actually, it's a lot like an archaeological site, with objects recovered from different layers, with their time of deposition partially readable from the stratigraphy. If Alex Gerstein is even partly right, some of our conceptual groupings of stars predate the ancient languages we can recover. Go to any astronomical event today, and the constellation names you'll hear will be from a 1920s reform of a classical heritage which didn't stop developing till the middle of the 18th century. The principal naked eye stars will be referred to by Latin versions of medieval Arabic names. Major lunar features will be called by names assigned in the 17th century. The brighter nebulae and star clusters will be identified by 18th century catalog numbers. And many of the dimmer nebulae will be identified by late 19th and early 20th century catalog names. One of the attractions of current astronomical nomenclature is its cumulatively heterogeneous nature. It's been recognized since at least the 18th century that science proceeds most efficiently in an environment with a commonly agreed-upon vocabulary. For each of us, the organization of knowledge we possess and employ is a combination of common disciplinary practice and private experience, of formal and informal maps. We use printed and electronic star maps with symbolic representations of celestial objects plotted according to the best positional data and names of objects approved by the International Astronomical Union. Yet we also carry in our heads private cognitive maps of the discipline, star maps, and images of objects we have seen, sometimes identified by informal names. 
Both formal and informal maps are our guideposts to the stars. The classical constellations are among the longest-lived elements in our maps of the heavens. 150 years ago, at the time the society was founded, one could choose between celestial atlases with and celestial atlases without fully realized constellation figures. But in both cases, constellations were used to organize the contents of the sky laid out on the vault of heaven. If one sought diligently enough, a few celestial atlases without any constellation figures at all could be found. But the bounds of the constellations were still used in the accompanying texts as spatial containers for the fixed stars and in experienced users' internal cognitive maps. The cultural prestige of the classical heritage was still to be felt, and many astronomers saw Greek astronomy as the origin, or one of the origins, of the progress of astronomy which was still unfolding. The great name in Greek mathematical astronomy, Claudius Ptolemy, had attributed to him in the 10th century a memorable epigram illustrating a very personal relationship to the map of the heavens. Quote, I know that I am mortal, a creature of a day, but when I search into the multitudinous revolving spirals of the stars, my feet no longer rest on the earth, but standing by Zeus himself, I take my fill of ambrosia, the food of the gods. Close quote. Ptolemy, in his most famous authentic work, the Syntaxis or Almagest, when discussing celestial globes, emphasized the practical convenience of the use of the constellations on representations of the sky. Quote, As for the configurations of the shapes of the individual constellations, we make them as simple as possible, connecting the stars within the same figure only by lines, which, moreover, should be not very different in color from the general background of the globe. The purpose of this is, on the one hand, not to lose the advantages of this kind of pictorial description, and, on the other, not to destroy the resemblance of the image to the original by applying a variety of colors, but rather to make it easy for us to remember and compare when we actually come to examine the starry heaven, since we will be accustomed to the unadorned appearance of the stars and their representation of the globe, too." End quote. It would appear that his uranographic successors of the 16th to the 19th century were not so interested in keeping to simple, unadorned constellation figures. And I, for one, am glad they weren't. The first members of our society were inheritors of a European uranography with a strong classical veneer. One of our prized early possessions is the oldest complete celestial atlas in our collections, Alexander Jameson's late Georgian Celestial Atlas of 1822. It wasn't the only copy in the Young Dominion in 1868. It's a very charming book, but also a practical one. Its imagery was representative of influences forming the uranographic vision of our society's founders. Even if you were a tailor by profession, an astronomer by avocation, with little command of Latin and even less of Greek, you could still partake of an aspect of classical culture through absorbing these images. And the seal the society acquired in 1905, with its personification of the classical muse Urania against a suggestion of stars, is also very much a product of that tradition. A century before Andrew Elvins and his colleagues founded what became the RASC, another Georgian astronomical book was published, in which the mathematical practitioner John Hill gave a common-sense justification of the persistence of classical figures on celestial maps. His account is not dissimilar in part to Ptolemy's and still makes eminent sense today. Quote, Constellations. 
certain imaginary figures of birds, beasts, fishes, and the like in the heavens, under the outlines of which astronomers have collected certain stars, in order to the speaking regularly of them with regard to their places in the heavens. The fixed stars, although they are not by a great deal so numerous as might naturally appear to an unexperienced eye, are yet so many and so irregular in their situation that it would be impossible to treat of them without some sort of arrangement. And, by disposing them in this manner, in some part of the figure of an animal, or whatsoever else, they may be regularly and intelligibly spoken of, with respect to their situations of places, in regard to one another, and be treated of with the greater facility. Among other figures, the reverence of early times for certain persons, whom enthusiasm had spoken of as carried up into heaven, led them to ordain their representations for the receiving of certain stars, animals, and even things inanimate, which the fabulous stories of those times had afterwards supposed removed into the same regions, on particular occasions, become added to those, and by degrees the heavens were fully stored with these imaginary signs and lineaments. It was very early in the study of astronomy that the fixed stars were distributed into six classes, and soon after catalogues were made of them, and in these catalogues their situation in longitude and latitude was laid down. It is owing to these catalogues that we can apply the ancient observations to use by comparing them with the modern, and this would have been impossible without the assistance of the prior arrangement of the stars into constellations, since without this it would have been impossible for them to have been spoken of intelligibly. Close quote. The most notable early urinographic undertaking of the RASC was the star maps in the first editions of the Observer's Handbook. In the Editio Princeps from 1907 and its immediate successor of 1908, the star maps are nicked, with permission, from another publication. The constellation figures are of the stick variety, which might have earned Ptolemy's approval for simplicity, but the maps were small and without coordinates. They were not displeasing in appearance, indeed, they're reminiscent of the monthly star charts published in Sky News today, but at a much reduced scale. This style continued from 1909 to the beginning of 1911, the period when a diminished version of the handbook appeared serially in the successive numbers of the Journal of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. Even though the star charts in the handbook from those years were entirely derivative, someone had to fulfill the role of designer to redraw the images. That person was certainly a competent draftsman, but no one was identified in print as the artist. It should be noted that many scientific institutions, such as observatories and university departments, had technical artists on staff, and that scientists themselves, including astronomers, frequently had some experience in technical drawing, even if it was only from their student days in geometry and spherical trigonometry classes. When the publication of a separate handbook resumed in 1912, something good happened urinographically speaking. The RAS commissioned its own star charts for the handbook. These were bound in as a detachable set of four double-page magnitude four star charts down to minus 40 degrees declination, with lines of right ascension and declination. They were spacious enough to make customization easy through adding notes or plotting objects of interest to the observer, and the provision of a coordinate grid encouraged the latter. 
It is tempting to refer to this as the Rask Atlas. In addition to naked eye stars, the charts also included many of the Messier objects in their historic first appearance in the handbook. The 1915 handbook replaced the set of round circumpolar and square charts with several circular seasonal charts. Unlike the earlier charts, those of 1915 are signed RKY, the initials of C.A. Chant's colleague, R.K. Young. They are less competently drawn than the earlier charts, which were again published in the handbook till 1917, when they were apparently cut as an economy measure. It is quite possible that C.A. Chant was the designer of the magnitude 4 star charts and the copyist of the 1907 to 1911 charts, given that he was the editor of the handbook and didn't provide an artist's attribution. If so, he was a respectable urinographer on a small scale. In the same year that the variant charts appeared in the Observer's Handbook, Young published a magnitude 5 atlas down to minus 30 degrees declination in the Journal of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, which he called a mnemonic star atlas. A mnemonic star atlas uses a map projection which displays all great circles as straight lines. Young explained its use. Quote, the following set of 13 maps is intended to facilitate the observation of meteors and the plotting of their paths, close quote. It is a much more ambitious piece of urinography than his maps for the handbook. Equally ambitious, but in a different way, is the project reported in the paper preceding Young's mnemonic atlas. In that contribution, Rask member H.B. Collier reports on how I sculptured the moon. He had produced a 3D, accurately contoured sculptural representation of the visible face of the moon. Judging by his photographs, it was a most impressive piece of work. We don't know what became of it. Had it survived, it would be exactly the sort of artifact one would wish for our archives. Speaking of Collier's selenographical project from 1915, in the earlier part of the 20th century, amateurs were occasionally encouraged to try their own hands at constructing their own star maps in one of the then-common map projections, preferably using their own astrometric observations. The Abbé Moreau gave instructions for how to go about the process in at least one of his many observing manuals. The latest publication aimed at amateurs which discusses the techniques for the practice of urinography is Dr. Tricker's attractive The Path of the Planets, dating from the years of the Apollo missions. The usual stated goal of the exercise was to equip amateurs with some practical experience of what went into the construction of celestial maps. The exercise was also part of rudimentary undergraduate astronomy courses at the beginning of the 20th century. Many of us could doubtless benefit from trying it now, in this age of easy computer-aided astronomy. Of course, there are amateurs who can now write their own planetarium programs, which is the same sort of thing using modern technology. I know of no amateur RASC members who took up the challenge of becoming urinographers in the first half of the 20th century, but that does not mean that there weren't any. In a related line of endeavor, Jeff Garrity, whom we mentioned in our last episode, did compile a map of Martian Albedo features around 1960. By that time, many amateurs had been venturing into astrophotography for decades. The most notable attempt to make a photographic map of the sky by an amateur RASC member is Damien LeMay's Atlas of the Sky from minus 40 degrees to plus 90 degrees declination, done with a modest 140 millimeter Schmidt camera in the years from 1977 to 1985. 
This, of course, was when film was in the ascendancy and there was no consumer computers, when undertaking such a project was considerably more difficult than it would be now. And the sessions during cold Ramuski winters could be brutal. Damien persevered and finished the project, for which he was awarded the Society's Chant Medal in 1987, our highest award for significant amateur achievement. While the Society was impressed by what he'd accomplished, he himself was ready to point out its shortcomings. He notes in retrospect that, quote, the 916 pictures were printed on 8 by 10 inch glossy paper. To me, at least, glossy seems to enhance resolution. The limiting magnitude is around 13 to 14, and each frame covers an area approximately 8.6 degrees by 5.9 degrees. They are not all of the same quality, and there are many reasons for this. When I began the project, I tested with the black and white films then readily available and decided to go with the Kodak Plus X, which showed smaller grains capable of resolving close stars better than other films. But in retrospect, that was not a good choice because its sensitivity is too different compared to human eyes, and it is also very poor in the red, thus being inefficient with nebulas emitting the important wavelength of H-alpha. My main instrument at that time was a Dynamax 8, Schmidt Cassegrain with optics similar to the Celestron 8 but poorer mechanics, and the 140mm Schmidt camera was mounted piggyback. Of course the mount was not go-to, and aiming was done manually. Because of the shaky setup and various mistakes, many pictures were not well centered on the target fields. Such a Schmidt camera is prone to generate scratches because of the way the film was loaded and unloaded from the camera, so there are many. Also, some stars are actually specks of dust, and accidental warping of the negative generated what looks like crescents." End quote. Well, Damien's entitled to make those comments, but as far as we're concerned, what he accomplished remains impressive, and it's something neither Randall nor I can lay claim to. If you're at all interested in viewing it, a digitized version is viewable at www.rask.ca slash AP introduction. We earlier mentioned that each of us carries in our heads private cognitive maps of the sky. The most spectacular example I know of are the memory maps of the stars in other galaxies used by the Reverend Dr. Robert Evans, one of our honorary members, and the person holding the personal record for most supernova discoveries made at the eyepiece. Reverend Evans had memorized the appearance of more than a thousand galaxies and adjacent star fields down to the 15th magnitude. Without the use of printed or electronic star atlases, he could locate and examine galaxy after galaxy at a rate of about one a minute. That ability certainly came in use when discovering extragalactic supernovae with 10 to 16 inch backyard telescopes. Needless to say, his is an observational feat much beyond my more limited abilities, but it is something to which we can aspire, even if only in a very limited sort of way. Thanks to everyone who tuned in, and we hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions, please visit www.ras.ca slash rask-2018-podcast for contact details. Our next podcast is scheduled for a month from now and is on the traditions of amateur telescope making within the Rask and what happened to them. Our sound engineer is Chelsea Body, and our theme music is by Eric Svilpis. See you next month, everybody.